Welcome to CME on ReachMD. This activity is provided by Evolve Medical Education. Prior to beginning the activity, please be sure to review the faculty and commercial support disclosure statements, as well as the learning objectives. Hi, I'm Christina Wang, and welcome to part two of this video series on two very common conditions that we treat as retina specialists. We're talking about wet AMD and diabetic macular edema. Now, in this particular discussion, we are going to be focusing on wet AMD, and specifically, we're going to be concentrating on current as well as upcoming exciting therapeutics to treat this very common disease. And specifically, we're gonna be focusing today on PDS, which is the port delivery system with ranibizumab and a very exciting gene therapy called RGX314. I want to first thank Evolve Medical Education for hosting today's CME webinar. And it is my absolute joy and pleasure to welcome my friend and colleague, Dr. Peter Campochero. He is the director of the Retina Cell and Molecular Laboratory, as well as the George S. and Dolores Doré Eccles Professor of Ophthalmology and Neuroscience at the Wilmer Eye Institute at Johns Hopkins University. Welcome, Peter. Thank you so much for being here with us today. Thank you, Christine. It's a pleasure to be with you. Absolutely. We're happy to have one of the experts in this area. He's been highly involved with many of these trials that we're going to talk about today. So Peter, I thought that a nice way to sort of segue into the discussion of port delivery system and RGX314 would be to start off with a case. And you've provided us with a very, very nice case with a long period of follow-up. So I'm gonna to move to the next slide here. And let me just first say that our focus is wet AMD, but in this particular patient, we're actually gonna talk about someone with CRVO-related macular edema in the right eye and neovascular AMD in the wet eye and, and in the left eye. And the reason it's important to talk about the CRVO here, even though our focus is wet AMD, is because it helps us contextualize, I think, the approach and uh, kind of the whole patient on a holistic level. So why don't we start off here talking about the right eye first? Yes, Christina, this is a patient who developed a CRVO in 2006, so really at the beginning of the anti-VEGF era. And he was involved in several very early trials. And at that point, we didn't really have a complete understanding of the best way to treat these retinal and choroidal vascular diseases. So what this slide shows is that orange bars are the, the central retinal thickness. And the, the um, scale for that is on the left. And the blue line is the best corrective visual acuity. Now you can see at the outset, he had a central retinal thickness of about 500 microns. He got an injection of ranibizumab and it came down to about 300 into the normal range and his vision improved to about 2025. And then throughout three years in that top uh, line, he um, maintained that 2025 vision despite the fact that we were treating him PRN intermittently, and you can see on those orange bars that his, his edema was not always well controlled. Uh, in the second line is the second three years of follow-up, and you can see that his vision is still pretty well maintained, even though we didn't do a great job of, of uh, controlling his edema, and he even received in one trial scatter photocoagulation to try to reduce the need for injections. And that we learned from that trial does not work. Um, but eventually you can see in the bottom line that he began to receive more injections. And right there about a 
third of the way through, he developed Neovaster AMD and his fellow eye. And at that point, he was getting, he received monthly injection in his Neovaster AMD eye, and so also monthly injection in his CRBO eye. And then you see finally his edema is well controlled. And <clears throat> he's now maintaining normal retinal thickness, but in his vision is is uh, maintained as well, but it's decreased to about 2063 from the peak of 2032. So he, had, he paid a price for this period of, of suboptimal control. Mm -hmm. Now, yeah, on the I next slide, you see his fellow eye. And this is the one that uh, with Neovascular AMD. And because he had subnormal vision in his fellow eye from the vein occlusion, in a situation like that, I always treat very aggressively. I've learned that in order to obtain the best outcomes, you have to be aggressive. He got monthly injections. You can see that his central retinal thickness was well controlled throughout this. He occasionally missed appointments. And there were some times where his thickness went up a little bit, but his vision was maintained at 2020 throughout this entire period. Yeah, Peter, these are, this is a great case. I mean, first of all, starting off with the left eye to have a wet AMD patient finish after three years with 2020 visual acuity is just phenomenal. And if you think back to the pre-anti-VEGF era, it really is just astounding how far we've come with, with these medications. And even with the CRVO in the right eye, I do the same as you, by the way, if someone is um, you know, with a condition or monocular in one eye or has suboptimal vision in one eye, I'm also very aggressive, even though for most of my patients, I do treat on a treat and extend basis. I completely agree that monthly is the way to go in this case, because we know that monthly injections have shown and been correlated with the best visual acuity outcomes. So I think this is phenomenal. But you know, one thing I really grapple with is 31 injections, and that's just for one eye, 31 injections over the course of three years. Great outcome, but when you think about it, that is sure a lot on that patient. You know, not just coming in for a needle in the eye, but you're thinking about elderly people needing transportation in. Sometimes they have to bring family members in. It's just a lot, not to mention the small but real risk of untoward outcomes that can happen with intravitreal injections like endophthalmitis, retinal detachment. And so I think this case just wonderfully highlights the unmet need in this area right now, which is a longer durability agent that can treat these diseases. Um, our focus today will be wet AMD. And you're gonna tell us about two of them. We'll start off today with the port delivery system. I know you've played a really critical role in uh, these trials, been highly involved, have uh, performed many of these surgeries. So I can't wait to hear a little bit about this from you. Leading you off, Peter, um, tell us a little bit about PDS with Ranavizumab for the audience. Okay, well, the port delivery system is a refillable reservoir that's inserted through the pars plana with a fairly straightforward surgical procedure, and then it constantly releases ranibizumab into the vitreous cavity, and it spans from outside the eye to the vitreous cavity, so the septum is visible underneath the conjunctiva, and it can be accessed for a refill exchange that can be done in the office. Wonderful. And uh, so it's a one-time surgical procedure. And I wanted to ask you, you know, in with these in-office refills that you give to the patient, is it very similar to an intravitreal injection, Peter? How does it feel to you and how does it feel to the patient? There are some differences. Uh, so one thing is that the septum has some resistance. And so this is a very fine needle. 
And it takes a little bit of pressure to put it through. So I always warn my patients that you're not gonna feel very much pain. You just have to go through the conjunctiva. So it's not like a standard intravitreous injection, but you will feel some pressure. And so the key thing is targeting and finding the real center of, of the septum. And once that's done and you have a perpendicular approach to it, then apply some pressure, maybe with just some slight turning, and then it pops through into the, the reservoir. And then you see the success immediately because as you push on the plunger, you see the, the refill exchange come back into the needle. Got it. Yeah. Thank you for explaining that. You know, it's exciting. This is potentially our first surgical approach to wet AMD. The FDA just accepted the BLA uh, for this um, device product. So uh, we are kind of on the way and this is something that's becoming a reality. You've been involved with both ladder and archway. This is the phase two study, Peter, that, that evaluated PDS. They were both, those two trials were designed in slightly different ways, looking at different primary outcomes. Can you walk us through ladder first? This is our phase two for PDS. Yeah, Christina, this, this um, looked at the PDS filled with 10, 40, or 100 milligrams per milligram ranibizumab and compared it to monthly injections of 0.5 milligrams of ranibizumab. And the primary endpoint was the time to first PDS refill. So in the 100 milligram per mil group, the median time to first refill was 15.8 months. And in the other two groups, it was slightly uh, shorter at 13 months and 8.7 months in the 40 and 10 milligram per, uh, per mil uh, PDS arms. Now, that shows you that there's this dose response. And in that 100 milligram per mil arm, that's really a quite long duration, and 80% of patients went six months or more without requiring a refill exchange. Yeah, that, that's phenomenal to see. You know, the, there's really been this quest to even get patients out to quarterly, and we haven't had therapeutics that have consistently been able to do that for such a large majority of patients. So I find this really exciting. And it's neat because as you're going to talk to us soon about, in Archway, they had mandated Q six-month refills in that study design. But ladder was nice because it sort of let the patients run to kind of see how far they could go. And to see that 80% of patients went six months or longer without requiring a refill in the 100 milligram per milliliter dose, and the fact that the median time to first refill in that highest dose arm was you know, almost 16 months. I think that is just really, really impressive. So let me ask you, you know, in the real world, if, if, and when we do have PDS available for our patients, if you had a patient that was being treated with PDS, how often would you, you know, bring them in to check on them if they can really go such a long duration? Do they, do they still need to come every month or every, every other month? What do you, how do you envision yourself sort of approaching that? So I think Christina, right after implantation, uh, you want to watch to make sure that there are no complications. Yeah. So I would bring them back, you know, in the first month and make sure that there's a good conjunctival cover, that everything looks good. There's no signs of inflammation. And then maybe bring them back once or twice, maybe once more uh, before the refill exchange period at six months. So at five months, make sure there's no uh, exudation at that point, no problems with the conjunctiva. Then do a refill exchange at six months. And once you're 
through that first refill exchange, if you see that the patient has made it out to that, then the likelihood of them needing a refill exchange earlier than six months is very low. You might bring them back five months after the second refill exchange, but then after that, I think every six months is fine. Now, you brought up a good point. A ladder showed that some patients can go longer than six months. Mm -hmm. So would you want to have some patients go longer? Personally, I would rather trade predictability for a little bit longer duration than six months. If you know a patient can reliably go six months and you just have to bring them back every six months to do a refill exchange, I think that's pretty, pretty optimal. And I'm not going to be greedy, at least initially, to try to go longer than six months. Yeah, I completely agree. And, you know, I think one of the points that you really made well is with our surgical device like this. And we'll talk about some of the complications that were observed in Archway a little bit later on in the deck, especially when a lot of surgeons are going to be doing this early on. I think it's very um, wise to be just cautious, right, and to be monitoring these patients closely for any of those issues that can arise. Um, so I think you make great points there. Thank you very much. And now we're going to move into Archway. This is our phase three trial for port delivery system with ranibizumab. And uh, tell us a little bit about how this differed, Peter, from the latter design. Well, as you pointed out, Christina, this one used a fixed uh, every 24-week refill exchange. So it was the 100 milligram per mil PDS versus monthly injections of ranibizumab. And, but they were... Um, brought back every month and observed. And if patients had any uh, sign of exudation that met predetermined criteria, they were able to get a supplemental injection the two visits before each refill exchange. And so patients were observed pretty carefully, but the, the goal was to try to see if they could get to six months for each refill exchange and how that would compare to monthly injections of ranibizumab. Mm -hmm. Yeah, perfect. And I wanted to ask you, Peter, about the criteria that they used here for supplemental or rescue injections of ranibizumab. And if you, if you look at these closely, it looks like potentially you could have a small amount of fluid present uh, but not necessarily be rescued with the way this was designed. Now that differs a little bit, not for everybody, but from, from the way a lot of retina specialists practice where we still aim to treat to dry. So let me ask you, if you have a patient who is treated with you know, poor delivery system, do you think you'll follow these same criteria? Is that something that we should do in the real world and perhaps start shifting our algorithm to uh, tolerate a little bit of subretinal fluid, which has been shown in other post-hoc studies to perhaps be okay in this disease state? What do you think about that? Yeah, Christina and Ladder, uh, these criteria came from what we learned in Ladder. And what we learned was that patients sometimes had some fluctuation in fluid. And they would have a little bit of increase in fluid uh, or persistent fluid. And then spontaneously, without any treatment, uh, it would resolve. And so we learned that with treatment ongoing, you can have this little bit of fluctuation that does not really indicate disease activity. And as you point out, this is different from treat and exchange or treat and extend. When we have treat and extend, you treat a patient. The drug is gone 
you know, by one to two months, but you may take a patient out longer, they're uncovered. When they have recurrent fluid, this is generally an indication of resurgent disease activity. But when you have ongoing treatment, treatment on board, you can have this fluctuation and it's a different biomarker. It doesn't necessarily mean that the disease is reactivated. So we are gonna have to learn to sort of recalibrate how we think about persistent or slight increases in fluid when we have these sustained delivery approaches. Yeah, I think that's a great point. And, you know, very similarly with gene therapy, which is you can also think of as a continuous or sustained delivery approach. I totally agree. I think that we're going to have a little bit of shift in the way we think and approach these types of patients and the way we tolerate uh, fluid that you might see. So that's a wonderful point. I want to keep moving here. Uh, this right here, if you want to just sum up the slide for us, Peter, shows the visual QD changes at, um, at uh, the primary endpoint here. Right, so you, what it demonstrated was that the, the 0.2 uh, letter improvement in the PDS arm was uh, non-inferior and equivalent to the 0.5 improvement in the monthly injection arm. And so Archway met its primary endpoint. Uh, this is really a very small uh, difference and uh, shows that you know it was projected that if it was just within 4.5 letters, that would be sufficient. And you can see that this is within a much narrower range. So it really is equivalent to monthly injection of ranibizumab. And I found that so encouraging because monthly ranibizumab is, is perhaps the gold standard, right? What we have seen in trials that brings the best visual acuity outcomes. And to see that this was non-inferior and, and really very comparable, as you can see from the absolute numbers, um, averaged over weeks 36 and 40 is, is really phenomenal. So that is wonderful to see. Walk us through this slide right here. This just shows us kind of how the best corrected visual acuity tracked over time. And I was struck by how parallel these lines are, how similar they are. And we'll see the same, uh, very similar phenomenon on the next slide, which shows the anatomic changes. But can you just briefly sum up what we're seeing here? Yeah, Christina, these patients were previously treated with anti-VEGF. So they experienced uh, substantial improvement vision prior to entering the trial. And at baseline, both arms had a, a visual acuity of, in the range of 2032. And you see that there was a slight decrease in the PDS arm after the implantation that was transient. It returned to baseline. And then throughout the remainder of the trial, both arms maintained 2032 vision. And so it was, you know, very good vision stability uh, with both monthly injection or the PDS. And then as you point out, you know, this was mirrored by the anatomic outcomes, which showed essentially no increase in the central foveal thickness throughout the entire duration of the trial, meaning that exudation was really well controlled. Yeah, it's great to see that there wasn't a drastic amount of excursion uh, in, in terms of the anatomic central foveal thickness, I think that's uh, really reassuring. And, and one of the benefits I think that we're going to appreciate more and more with these sustained delivery approaches or continuous therapy approaches, such as with gene therapy, I think that's really a, a quiet benefit that we haven't fully realized yet. And tell us about this slide, Peter. This is interesting. This shows the aqueous 
concentrations of ranibizumab. And I know you've done a lot of work with regards to the pharmacokinetics, um, and it's great to see this in sort of a quantitative form. So tell us what uh, we should take away from this slide. Yeah, this really provides um, sort of the take-home message that, you know, what the benefit of the PDS is and why it has such good efficacy and durability. Because what this slide shows is the aqueous levels throughout the entire second refill exchange. And you can see at week 48, the level in the aqueous is one point, about 1.5 micrograms per mil, which is a pretty substantial level. And at week 28, which is uh, four weeks after the previous refill exchange, it's about 4.5 micrograms per mil. So throughout this entire period, it ranges only from 4.5 to 1.5 micrograms per mil, which is a fairly narrow range. So you're essentially maintaining really quite good levels of ranibizumab around the clock. The entire period, the patient is, is you know, has within the eye a substantial level of ranibizumab. So thank you very much for that summary, Peter. The last part of this section that I want to focus on before we segue into RGX314 is to highlight some of the ocular adverse events that were observed in the Archway study. Now, as I mentioned earlier, this is potentially our first surgical approach to neovascular AMD. And of course, surgery naturally will come with its own set of challenges and you know, obstacles that we're going to have to overcome. But I think some of these uh, issues are, are definitely worth walking through, and I'll have a couple questions for you as well. So, Peter, if you don't mind summing this slide up for us, that would be really helpful. Yeah, this shows the ocular adverse events of special interest through an average of 79 weeks of follow-up. So this is sort of the entire duration of the trial compared to, you know, the first 40 weeks, which was the primary outcome. And what it really shows, Christina, is that there wasn't a whole lot of additional adverse events after that first 40 weeks. You can see in the first line, the cataracts, that there were some additional progression of cataract, which is ex expected over time. As far as the conjunctival complications, there was one additional bleb and one erosion. So, you know, compared to, you know, the, the fair number of conjunctival adverse events initially, now in the longer follow-up, you see very few additional uh, instances. There, there was no additional patients who had endophthalmitis, but there was one patient who had a second bout of inflammation that was culture negative. And that patient had a history of ocular inflammatory disease in the fellow eye and probably had uveitis. Now there was one case in the long-term follow-up of uh, endophthalmitis in the monthly injection arm. Uh, in terms of retinal detachment, there were no additional retinal detachments. There were two additional cases of vitreous hemorrhage, which were mild and resolved spontaneously. In fact, all of the cases of vitreous hemorrhage uh, throughout the trial, all 17 cases, were mild and did not require vitrectomy. Now, of interest, there were two additional uh, dislocations of the implant during refill exchange, which for a total of three throughout the trial. And 
it was learned that in those three cases, the scleral incision was larger than 3.7 millimeters, which is the upper limit of what's, of what's allowed. So this is a point of emphasis moving forward that we really want to have the scleral incision 3.5 millimeters. And so during the procedure, it's, it's important to measure several times and make sure it's no bigger than 3.5 millimeters. And if it is, put in a nylon suture to make sure that you limit the size of the scleral opening to 3.5 millimeters. Yeah, thank you for summing up that data. You know what I take away from this? When you're looking at the overall rates of adverse events and then those that had onset beyond week 40, those numbers are, are pretty small, right? Compared to, to, to the overall ones. And it tells me kind of what you said earlier that these patients probably we should very carefully watch initially after implantation of the PDS. But then we still need to be prudent, of course, but we can probably feel more comfortable letting them go longer intervals the longer they've had the port delivery system in. Is, is that kind of an accurate interpretation, Peter? Yeah, that's exactly right, Christine. I think that, uh, you know, as with any surgical procedure, that early postoperative period is, is pretty important. And uh, this is reassuring to see, you know, one of the concerns we had was if you have a, this port delivery in place, does it provide a portal of entry for microorganisms? And it appears, you know, the data so far suggests that, you know, once you establish that good conjunctival cover, uh, there's pretty good protection. It's unlikely to be a lot of late endophthalmitis. Yeah, I know that was a concern of a lot of people, so it's reassuring to see that. The, the other takeaway I, I, I kind of gleaned from this slide is I remember, especially in latter, earlier on in, in the trials, we saw more vitreous hemorrhage. And with some modifications to the surgical technique, very much like modifications that are being done now to minimize that chance of implant dislocation, those numbers have dropped significantly. There's still some vitreous hemorrhage seen, but those numbers are a lot lower than what they were previously and earlier on in the, in the trials. And it just shows us that there's going to be a learning curve naturally, right? And with That's appropriate right. training and education of surgeons who are going to be putting in this device, putting in this implant, I think that potentially, especially with the conjunctival issues that we've been observing, those can probably be minimized even further than what we're seeing here too. Yes, I agree, Christina. Yeah. All right. Well, thank you so much. I want to go ahead and move on now to our second part of this discussion, which is going to focus on RGX314. Now, this is a very, very exciting therapeutic, in my opinion. This is a gene therapy that will allow for continuous delivery by converting the eye into a biofactor that produces its own anti-VEGF supply, something very similar to ranibizumab. Can you walk us through the design of the phase 1-2-A study for neovascular AMD, Peter? Yeah, so this was a trial in previously treated uh, patients with neovascular AMD. And at the outset, patients got an injection of ranibizumab, and then they were brought back one week later and determined if the excess foveal thickness was reduced by 30% or more. If so, they were judged to be responsive to anti-VEGF, and then they received within a week later a subretinal injection of RGX314, and then were followed closely thereafter. And the criteria for supplemental injections was really quite loose. 
if the patient at the at the criteria at the discretion of the investigator, uh, any amount of fluid could uh, trigger a, a an injection. Um, and so, uh, the, you know, it really was similar to what we do in in uh, current treatment. Uh, we've learned from them that you know with as we discussed previously, with treatment ongoing, that you don't necessarily want to worry about really small amounts of, of fluid. But in any case, these patients, you know, it was a total of 42 patients uh, over five dose cohorts. Um, and, um, you know, it really showed us the dose response that can be achieved with this gene therapy. Great. And what about the safety of this? Peter, because this was also studied as a subretinal gene therapy in this particular study. So again, we're looking to surgical approaches now to neovascular AMD. And a subretinal injection is something that maybe not every retinal surgeon has done. What did they see in terms of ocular adverse events? So, you know, with the in terms of the, the procedure, um, it really turned out to be quite safe. There was one retinal detachment that was repaired with a scleral buckle with no reduction in vision. That patient actually gained a, a substantial amount of vision. Uh, and remarkably, there was very little in the way of inflammation. Whenever you're worried about gene therapy, you think about, is there an immune response? And there was very little evidence of an immune response to the subretinal injection of this vector. Now, there was an interesting finding in that uh, there was dose-related pigmentary change in the inferior retina. And, you know, in this trial, the blebs were superior. The, the subretinal injection was done above the super temporal arcade vessel, uh, trying to avoid it going beyond the arcade vessel into the macula. Uh, but these pigmentary changes occurred inferiorly, so they weren't really related to the bleb. And we know from previous animal studies that uh, almost all expression occurs in the region of the bleb. There's very little expression um, elsewhere. And so the pigmentary changes weren't related to expression of transgene. Uh, and it's not really known exactly what the mechanism is. It, the one hypothesis is that there was some dependent spread of small amounts of vector down to the inferior retina and for some reason, it stimulated some proliferation of the RPE cells, so there was some pigmentary change. Now, in all but one patients, there was no change in vision, there was no symptoms, but one patient had some pigmentary changes occur in the macula, uh, and it could not be ruled out that this was related to the vector. So in current and future studies, subretinal injection will be done in the inferior retina to prevent any dependent spread of vector through the macula. That's great to hear. And you know, we're observing some of those similar pigmentary changes with Veretagina Parvovec too, which of course is a subretinal gene therapy that is FDA approved for RPE65 by allelic deficiency. And again, also uh, still kind of searching for the exact etiology. It's interesting to hear all the different theories that this could be, but at least in this trial, I think what's nice is that these bleds are not within the macula in general. They're not foveal involving for most patients. And so uh, that gives us some relief as well that these areas, if they do happen, 
happen are outside. And by putting them inferiorly and perhaps preventing some of that guttering that, that could happen when you put in a subretinal bleb, hopefully we'll see that decrease as well. So that's great to hear. Now, I wanted to hear from you about the protein level expression of RGX314. Yeah, that was a very nice thing about this trial because you really want to know if you're achieving what your goal is, which is you know, expressing this anti-BEGF protein. And by measuring the aqueous levels, you could see that there was a dose-related um, expression. So that in the first two cohorts with the low doses, there was very little expression. But with cohort three, you see that there's moderate expression. And in cohorts four and five, there was quite high levels of RGX314 in the aqueous. And now, if you don't mind, Peter, walk us through some of the visual acuity and anatomic data that we saw. I know you're focusing here on cohorts three to five, where we've seen more of an efficacy signal. And we have almost three years now of data for cohort three and over a year and a half of data for cohorts four and five. And it's great to see these types of graphs, graphs that show stability or improvement in the visual acuity. So can you just walk us briefly through this slide here? Yeah, as you point out, Christina, you know, the, the efficacy signal correlated quite well with the expression data. So in cohorts one and two, there really was little sign of efficacy. The patients really required a lot of supplemental injections. Uh, but in, starting in cohort three, um, there were few injections that were needed. And despite that, the patients showed improvement in visual acuity. And in cohorts four and five, there was good stability of visual acuity. So this is probably one of my favorite slides in the deck, Peter. This is showing patients before and after their treatment with RGX314 in cohorts three to five. And I want to remind the viewers that patients in this study who were treated with RGX314 are not treatment naive. In fact, they're not treatment naive at all. If you take a look at how many injections were needed and how frequently they were needed prior to gene therapy, you really, I think, can further appreciate that reduction in treatment burden that you see follows that vertical dotted line of orange, which is the point that the um, uh, patients received, uh, I'm sorry, right, right after that, which is the point that they received the gene therapy. And so, um, you know, what do you think about this, Peter? I mean, especially cohort five with the 81.2% reduction in the annualized number, number of injections. I mean, I, I think that's phenomenal. How about you? Yeah, we were very encouraged by this. And, you know, so it shows that these patients who were very needy with regard to anti-BEGF injections, um, many of them no longer required any injections. And despite that, you know, had stable or improved visual acuity. And those that you can see that there's still some patients who required injections, but we learned, we came to understand the reasons for that in some of these patients. So for instance, the very first patient in, in cohort three, that patient had an unsuccessful subretinal injection and had no expression of RGX314. So this is why this patient continued to require supplemental injections. Now the first patient in cohort five, that patient had a large cystoid space in the, in the macula, received an injection of ranibizumab, came back, and there was a 30% reduction in that large cystoid space, but there was still a very large cystoid space. Mm -hmm. And then with, sub, with the subretinal injection of the vector and then monthly injections of ranibizumab, which are the orange dots there, 
there was no further reduction in that cystoid space. So the patient was changed to a flibercept and got monthly injections of flibercept, and there was still no reduction in that cystoid space. So this was a patient who was judged to be responsive to anti-VEGF, but in fact was not particularly responsive. And so we've learned that the criteria that we use for responsiveness to anti-VEGF needs to be a little bit more rigorous. And so for future trials, uh, new criteria have been adapted. The other thing, as you pointed out previously, because you know, there's constant treatment, we now have learned to tolerate small amounts of fluid, whereas many of these patients had very little fluid, but it was still treated with supplemental injections. So there's many patients who did not require injections. There's some that required them, and we now understand a little bit more of how we would handle that in a future trial. And speaking of future trials, Atmosphere is one of the first of two pivotal trials that's going to be looking at RGX314. The design is a little bit different. They're looking at two different doses of RGX314 compared to ranibizumab given every month conventionally. So tell us a little bit about this design. So in this um, trial, patients will get an injection of ranibizumab at baseline. Then they'll come back a week later. Then the more rigorous criteria for responsiveness to, to anti-VEGF will be applied. And if they, if they are found to be responsive, then they'll be randomized to one of the two doses of subretinal injection of three, uh, RGX314 or monthly injections of ranibizumab. We'll then come back three weeks later, get another intravitreous injection of ranibizumab. And then within the next two weeks, the patients in the RGX314 arms will have the subretinal injection of the, the assigned dose of, of vector. And then there'll be follow-up with the primary outcome at week uh, 56 uh, to, to determine the change from baseline and best corrected visual acuity with a non-inferiority design to determine if the RGX314 is non-inferior to monthly ranibizumab. And Peter, were the two doses chosen based on the 1-2-A study? Did they try to sort of straddle the minimal efficacious uh, dose that we saw? Yes, you're exactly right, uh, Christina. So, you know, we found that the initial sign of efficacy was in cohort three. And so this dose is between cohort three and cohort four. Uh, and the, you know, we saw that the greatest amount of pigmentary changes occurred in, in cohort five. So the second dose is between cohort four and cohort five. So it, these doses, you know, provide what, what we think should be a good level of efficacy with this a fairly small chance of adverse events. Yeah, that's great. That's great. I can't wait to see what that shows. And lastly, I just want to briefly touch on AVA. AVA is an RGX314 phase two clinical trial, but it's looking at RGX314 delivered via a suprachoroidal route. I think what's really exciting about that is obviously the subretinal space is a relatively immunoprivileged space. And I think that's probably why it's tolerated well without significant inflammation that we sometimes see with our intravitreal gene therapies. 
That being said, it still requires a vitrectomy, requires going to the operating room, and these patients are generally going to be elderly. Some of them might have a lot of, you know, friable conge um, or comorbidities such as glaucoma, where you may not think of them as the most ideal surgical candidates. So it's exciting to think about a supracoital route because it takes that procedure into the clinic where you can avoid some of those surgical risks. And this is given via the SCS microinjector. And I mean, tell me a little bit about this study. And, and, and I know you've done a lot of work in gene therapy, both you know, with subretinal as well as the supracoital routes. Do you think this um, space will offer kind of the best of both worlds in terms of efficacy and safety when you're comparing it to, say, the intravitreal and, and subretinal routes? Well, that's yet to be determined, Christina, but it does, as you point out, show a lot of promise. I mean, it's a, a minimally invasive uh, technique. It you know, can be done in the clinic. And the nice thing is, is that uh, you can adjust the volume that's injected, you know, with any injection, is intravitreous or supracordial, you're limited by the increase in pressure. Uh, but, you know, you can inject and then wait a period of time and do more injection. It turns out for this trial that we're really going to look primarily at either 50 or 100 um, milliliters injected. And we'll see, you know, can we find efficacy and uh, with this, you know, less invasive approach? Uh, and you know, it's it's new. It's it's data that's exciting. Yeah. Um, we can't tell what the results are going to be yet, but uh, like you, I'm excited to see what they'll be. Yeah, absolutely. And I know they're also looking at it in diabetic retinopathy. So that's another disease state for another day, but uh, it is also very exciting in that area at this point with a lot of great options that are hopefully soon to be on our plate. So you know, just to wrap things up, I thank you very much for that excellent summary of, bo of both PDS as well as RGX314. I think that we have learned that under treatment leads to poor outcomes for a lot of these patients with wet AMD. And so sustained suppression of VEGF is what we've learned is needed for best outcomes to optimize these outcomes for our patients. And there are several approaches that are being looked at in the investigational pipeline to achieve this, but two of them that show great promise include the port delivery system with ranibizumab, as well as gene therapy for sustained expression of anti-VEGF proteins. And I'm really excited for the future um, in this area. I think we're going to have a lot of great options to be able to offer our patients. And, you know, as you said nicely in this last sentence, they're likely to revolutionize the management of retinal and choroidal vascular diseases. So that is just amazing. I want to just ask one question as we wrap up, Peter, you know, thinking about uh, potentially having these options for your patients in the future. What's that first patient that comes to mind to you that you might be thinking about using either PDS or RGX314 um, in? Well, you know, I think that, you know, the patients that really require very frequent injections, uh, similar to the patient that we started with, you know, uh, requiring monthly injections, um, you know, I, I think that those are ideal patients for the PDS. And I can tell you, based upon my experience with um, in these trials, that patients who uh, get the PDS in, in one eye and are still getting injections in the other eye, they just can't wait to get the PDS in their fellow eye. So I think those patients who are really uh, requiring a lot of injections 
patients are going to be uh, the patients who, you know, probably first are, are going to be treated, but I'll extend it to, you know, I think it applies to many patients and, you know, even in even treatment naive patients, once you establish that they are responsive to anti-VEGF, even those patients, I think, will be applicable. I totally agree. And I think it's really going to benefit them in many ways, you know, not just from a visual anatomic standpoint, obviously, which is our primary concern, but also in reducing that treatment burden and preventing them from potentially having to come in every four weeks for the rest of their life for these injections. I think it's really remarkable. So I want to thank you, Dr. Campuchero, again, for your time, a true expert in this field and for sharing your expertise. I think we have all learned a lot from you. So thank you again for being here. Well, thank you for having me, Christina. Absolutely. And uh, thank you to Evolve Medical Education. Stay tuned for other great educational initiatives. Take care. You've been listening to CME on ReachMD. This activity is provided by Evolve Medical Education. To receive your free CME credit or to download this activity, go to reachmd.com slash CME. Thank you for listening.